All right, guys, we're going to get rolling here today. Good to see you. We are week two of Revelation, this crazy, strange book that you find at the very end of the Bible that is probably the most misunderstood, confused, and utterly horrifying, scary, intriguing, or, or just kind of like, what do I do with this piece of literature that humanity has ever developed? It's written by the Apostle John. All this year, we are going through the writings of John. 10 o'clock is really anchoring into his gospel. This is going through Revelation and trying to figure out what is this thing about and more than getting into every individual symbol and passage, trying to cut a path through this book to help it make sense. So what I'd like to do today um, is just kind of catch us up really quick, maybe hit like a, a 90 second review on our territory from last week and use that to springboard into where we're going here, um, you know, for this round. So we talked about how Revelation, and it's not Revelations. If you ever say it with an S, cut out your tongue, all right? It's, it's a revelation, all right? A re- it, 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 it comes from a Greek word pronounced apocalypto. And apocalypto, you can hear the English apocalypse come out of that. But we talked about how that's a transliteration, not a translation, which basically means all it's doing is repurposing the sound of the original word, not getting the meaning out of it. So the meaning of apocalypto is nothing like really fancy or churchy or or anything like that it just means to like make something clear or to reveal something which is of course where you get the translation of the book revelation and again i always found that is the greatest irony that i think what is the most confusing book in the bible is the one that's literally titled making something clear right and so last week we were going through um this looking at how it is a making clear or the opening lines are it is a revelation of jesus christ and you can read that a couple of different ways does a revelation of jesus christ mean that it's revealing something about jesus christ or is it jesus christ revealing something as though it's a revelation you know coming from him of him like him is the source of it does that make sense and i think what you're going to find as we go through this is both are going to hold true you are going to see things about jesus that you really don't see in the same way reading any other part of the bible It's there, it's hinted at, you get glimpses, but this book called Revelation just blows it out on the scene in a hyper kind of way that that, that just makes everything else pale in comparison. But you also see that Jesus himself is giving this revelation to John, and so he's trying to show John something. And specifically, what he's trying to show John is the state of what's going on that explains what they as Christians are facing, particularly in a time of persecution. It's very easy in times of struggle or suffering or persecution to have the why is this happening question, right? This is what Revelation is about. Jesus is making clear why these Christians 
are facing what they're facing. And in very specific ways, why are, they, why are they even being singled out? Why does it seem like they're suffering more for being Christians? Why are they taking it on the chin harder than the rest? Why, in other words, is following Christ making life harder for them as opposed to easier? And so Jesus, who had to walk his own journey of that, is now making that clear and he's showing these early followers of Jesus in their contextual setting why it is they're facing what they're facing, what's going on behind the scenes, the reasons behind it. And out of that, there's so much to kind of just extrapolate and draw on, I think, for us today. And that's more or less where we left off last week. And we looked at a number of themes that you're going to see in Revelation. I'm not going to repeat them all, but the one that I want to go back to is simply this, pronounced N-I-K-E. We say Nike. They would say Nike. And it simply means to win, to overcome, to conquer. That's the meaning of that Greek word. And you'll see that word throughout. So I gave you an example here I want to show you today. This comes out of Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, where Jesus is saying this now. So like if you have a red letter Bible, this would be in red. And he says, to him who, reverse translate, Nikes or Nikes, if you will, to him who Nikes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I Niked and sat with my father on his throne. Just one little taste of how the word gets played out. So because you're suffering, there's this idea, hang in there, fight, overcome, win, don't let it break you, don't let it defeat you. It's going to knock you down, but don't let it keep you down. Keep persevering. Keep going. And of course, Revelation is going to paint all kinds of other reasons why that can be the case. Okay, so far so good? All right. Now, we just started to touch on this last time, but let's dig into it a little bit heavier here today. Something very important to remember, and it's that Revelation is a letter. So just like you write an email to someone, this is what John is doing with older technology to someone back arguably around 96 AD, let's say, if you want to try to plug a date in. Just as a quick aside, sometimes people are like, like, when did John write all this stuff? Like, when did he write his gospel and his letters? And no one's like kind of positive because they didn't copyright stuff back then. But the people who kind of like read this stuff and study this stuff, um, they'll come to different conclusions. But I think the prevailing one and the one that certainly kind of always spoke to me is that John is writing during the time of a tyrant Roman emperor named Domitian, probably around 96 AD. And that arguably John created so much confusion with Revelation that he later, like maybe a year or two later, wrote the Gospel of John. And then shortly before the end of his life, wrote like 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, um, if you will. I mean, who knows, but it seems to be about that time period. But it is a letter, and it's a letter not to an individual, but to a collection of individuals. A letter to seven different churches, and here they are. If you're looking at this map, 
it says the seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, if you kind of know your Eastern European geography um, or Middle Eastern geography, you could probably recognize Asia Minor is a country called something else today. Can you figure that one out? Turkey, or did I hear this, that they've recently officially changed the name to Turkia to mirror the actual uh, phonetic way that they'll pronounce it? You know how like it used to be Peking, but now it's Beijing? You know, they, they did one of those. But they wrote to Turkey, right? To these seven, late, these seven churches in Turkey, um, or what they in their day called Asia Minor. And you can read in black the the names of these churches, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Smyrna, Ephesus, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And if you open a Bible today and go to the book of Revelation, you, you kind of see how this is laid out. Look at chapter 2. Chapter 1 is John getting like kind of knocked on his butt by Jesus with this, this, this vision of Christ in his glory and in his, in his divinity. And then you come to chapter 2, and I'm using like a red letter hard text here. Whole lot of red letters there. And it goes through this cycle. You see, it starts with Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, and there's some stuff Jesus has to say. Then, to the angel of the church in Smyrna right? And then there's some stuff he has to say. The same with Pergamum, the same with Thyatira, the same with Sardis, etc. And so the idea behind it is, is it's one document written to all of these groups, but within it, there's a commonality of something that, that's going to apply to them all. But there's something specific embedded to each. And yet, each person is more or less CC'd, if you will, on everyone else. So the other churches are still getting to benefit from what might be a specific issue here. And so by writing something specific to you, it tends to have a benefit to all. Do you see how that kind of works? And so this is how Revelation is written. As much as it is this strange genre of literature, it fundamentally is a letter by John. Jesus telling John, hey, write down what you hear. Write down what you see. And I want you to tell it to these Christians who are struggling under this severe Roman persecution, who are completely in love with the imperial cult and a cultural way of understanding the world that is very antithetical and at odds with the Christian way of viewing the world, with the encouragement that Christ not only sees, but Christ hears, and Christ is on the throne, and so you can hang in there, and the encouragement just keeps blowing out more and more. Okay, so, so far so good. Yeah? Now, I want you to imagine for a minute, if you can, something like the Netherlands under the Nazi regime in World War II. If you know your history of that time, you might remember that Hitler went on a conquest of all the surrounding countries in the very late, very late 30s and very early 40s. And one of those countries was, you know, Holland or the Netherlands. 
And so imagine that you're a Jew, kind of like Anne Frank, or was she Denmark? I forget, but she was like one of those right around there. She was Netherlands. Imagine someone like Anne Frank or, or, or any other Jew who's now living in a nation that was once free, where you were more or less free, but now you are under a hostile regime, right? Can you kind of picture that? Imagine what that's like. Maybe you read stuff about that. If you have that kind of grasp, then you can understand what it was like for those early Christians living in this area of the world under the Roman Empire in 96 AD. Let me show you a couple things on the map. You see Turkey, but do you see how if you go west, you are in Greece really, really quick. And so in the ancient world, even much like today, most people live around water. And the connection you have over water often binds you together more than the connection on land because in land, it's harder to travel. In land, you have to get over mountains. In land, there's all kind of dangerous stuff. And this is my way of saying this, that these seven cities were Greek cities. All right? They had a lot in common and a lot of connection with Greece and all things West. But they were also where you got like, you know, it's, it's the frontier territory. It's the suburbs. Why do people move out of the city to the suburbs? Well, it's prettier and it's cheap land, right? So there was this influx of Romans, if you will, who lived there. Ephesus became um, notorious, I guess you could say, as being the second largest city. Um, in the Roman Empire, and the center, among other things, of the Roman imperial cult. It's fascinating. Like In Rome, people didn't take the emperor too seriously. I mean, they obeyed his edicts, they followed him, but it was very much more of what you would call like an American or a democratic mindset if you were in Rome. But if you were in these eastern cultures, Greece and going east, the Roman imperial cult was huge. And I cannot overstate this enough. In the east, they loved to divinize their kings. No one in the west ever looked at a Roman emperor and took him seriously when he said he was the son of God. But in the east, they veritably worshiped him. And the Roman imperial cult was huge over here. And who knows, maybe it was even in part Rome's way of trying to get people to buy their myth, to get people to invest in their culture, to get people to give their allegiance. So much like living in Nazi-occupied Netherlands, imagine the Nazi banners and the Nazi flags hanging from every every public square and every civic building. And imagine the guards with their armbands who are walking all around. And imagine like the, you know, the children's auxiliary groups who are singing the songs about Hitler. And imagine the mystique that starts to get created around it. And if you can imagine that, this is what it was like in this part of the Roman Empire at the time of Revelation with the imperial cult. I cannot overstate this enough because knowing that opens up the entire book. Now, with that in mind, I did mention earlier that it is a letter. 
But let me ask, when you are the minority and you're a persecuted minority and you can be arrested, even killed, for the belief set that you're holding to, how do you write in such a way that doesn't lead to your indictment? Are you following me on this? How would you do it? How would you communicate in such a way so as not to get like, you know, your rear end handed to you by the government? Okay, so you fictionalize it. What do you mean? Flush it out. You use alias, illustrations, metaphors, yeah. Yeah, you... Yeah, if you use symbol and you divert attention and you use kind of, shall we say, a code language, right? You can hope that those who are reading your mail don't understand your code. Are, are you with me on this? But here's the trick with any code. The people who you're writing to have to know the code. Otherwise, it's equally confusing to them. So what you have to do in your code language is write in such a way that you have a pretty good guess that the illusions you're making, the metaphors you're using, the symbols that you're referring to will be understandable to the people that you want to understand it, but you will have deniability if anyone tries to call you on it, even if they notice it at all. It is not just a letter. It is a subversive letter. It is a prison letter where they're embedding in every ninth letter, you know, like, you know, we've all seen enough prison movies to know how people get their mail out, right? This is fundamentally what Revelation is. It is a highly symbolic book because the symbolism, sometimes besides just being powerful in its own right, is a way for John to communicate to these churches in a time of occupation and persecution and oppression in such a way that they will hear the message that he's calling to without having what I would say, with having both deniability and not getting them into hot water as well. Are, are you, are you kind of with me on this? So that is what Revelation is doing. Now, I want to give you an example of how this works. Um, and this comes from uh, John Ortberg. He used to be a teaching pastor at Willow, then he went out to Menlo Park out in California, um, has since retired. But he has this great line that, come, that, that he did when he taught Revelation once, years back. And, and, and the way that he contextualized this is he said, imagine for a moment that you are living in Chicago in the 90s, all right? And not just in the 90s, but at the very end of the 90s, after like Jordan's last season and after the, the second three-peat of the Bulls. And then remember, they all retired. Did you guys say, oh, I was going to say Save the Last Dance. That's not what it's called. Um, have you seen that? It, the Last Dance. Save the Last Dance is that Julia Childs. Not Julia Childs. Uh, darn it, I'm mixing everything up. That would be great, though, if Julia Childs did Save the Last Dance. I would want to see that version. Julia Stiles. Yeah. Um, but The Last Dance, I mean, it's a great documentary. If you're into the Bulls, you can catch it on Netflix. But imagine now that you are reading the Chicago Tribune, 
right after the final six, Pete, and the word has come out that basically all the bulls have retired. You follow? You follow? All right. The bull which once ruled the earth for 72 months has suffered a mighty fall. For at the end of the days, the great horn of the bull, whose number is 20 and 3, let the reader understand, departed. And so did the great left horn of the bull. Then the third horn of the bull, who was pierced in many places and dressed like a woman, likewise departed. And the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the hornets and the timber wolves came and devoured the flesh of the bull and the glory of the mighty bull was laid low. Doesn't that sound like something that comes out of Revelation? And haven't you seen preachers or read books or seen movies do some of the most absurd things with this? Well, you know, there's going to come a time, maybe in like 2200 or something like that, sometime in the future where, hmm, some bull is going to come and rampage around and he's going to have the number 20 and 3 and everyone's going to be given an identification card with the number 20 and 3 and that's how you're going to know that they identify with the bull and they're going to do something with horns and there's going to be altars set up with horns. Do you see the over-literalness that people often get into trouble with with Revelation? Could you imagine if you did that with this little description here? I mean, it would be stupid you would miss the point. Because if you grew up in Chicago in the 90s, you know exactly what this means. Well, if you are a Christian living in 96 AD, you know exactly what this means. But I guarantee you this. Imagine I read this same paragraph to one of our students in Boulder right now. And I didn't set it up. But I just went in and said, guys, I want to read you a paragraph and I want you to tell me what it means. I mean, I would put money on this that nine out of ten of them would have no clue because it is highly contextual language. It is written to people who understand in such a way that resonates with them because the assumption is already there that they get it. But we stand 2,000 years later, right? looking at something that's someone else's mail, not understanding it. And as a result, often coming up with all kinds of strange, bizarre conclusions about what it means. Do you remember that G.K. Chesterton quote from last week? There are many strange creatures in the book of Revelation, but none so strange as the commentators who write about it. <laughs> right? So the trick to the book of Revelation is immersing yourself in their culture, in their way of thinking, in the code language of a first century Christian, particularly a first century Christian who loves the scriptures, which would be the Old Testament. And the more you get to know that, the more that John's letter that we call Revelation, this subversive letter makes more and more sense. All right? Okay. Now, today is 80s action movie day, because really there's no finer genre. All right? There are two clips 
that I want to show you, and I'm going to show you them back to back. And what I just soak them in for the glory that they are, because sometimes you just need to do it at that right. But try to kind of absorb what's going on. The first is from First Blood 2, you know, called Rambo often. All right. We've all heard of Rambo. All right. So the first clip is from that. The second clip is from a movie called Red Dawn. All right. And not the new Red Dawn, the good Red Dawn, the 1984 Red Dawn, which just as an aside, was the first PG-13 movie ever, ever theatrically released. So even, you know, richer in our lives here today. So we're going to watch these back to back. And, um, I am not really going to set them up. I'm just going to assume a high context of knowledge here because all of you that I see have pretty much lived in the 80s for the most part or have access to things in the 80s. And if you're not watching these things in the 80s, well, shame on you. Repent. Here we go. Here is clip number one. All right, the lights are going to come up in a second. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to analyze both movies. First Blood to we'll just call it Rambo, is basically about a Vietnam vet who is special forces, who is sent back in to Vietnam to search for POWs. And while he's there, he finds them, but because the government doesn't want it coming out, they abandon him there. He gets captured, he gets tortured, and what you witnessed was his escape scene, all right? Red Dawn is also taking place in the 80s, and it's about the hypothetical idea that the Russians come and invade the United States and occupy the United States, and what you're seeing is a bunch of high school and college kids leading a resistance, if you will, against foreign occupation. These are the ideas of the two movies, all right? Now, some questions, and I want you to kind of go with me through this. Let's start with Rambo. When you saw Rambo fighting, how did you see him fighting compared to those who were his captors? He's not in a uniform, secretive, careful. What's that? Guerrilla. It's a guerrilla style of fighting, right? Why isn't he going out? Why isn't he calling in an airstrike? Because he can't and he's by himself. So he's using the resources at hand, hiding in the mud and hiding in the crags and he has his bow and he has his blade and he's fighting with these tools to do it. Now, let's go to Red Dawn. It exemplifies it a little bit more. We just mentioned that it's high school and college students who are doing all the liberating here. So these are not trained soldiers. So let me ask, we saw them fighting with arguably AK-47s. We saw them fighting with grenades. We saw them fighting with machine guns, right? Were these like just standard issue things at their high school? It's like you get your books, you get your guns. I mean, it is out west, so maybe, but... Okay, so they're picking them up as they go. And, and who are they picking them up from? The soldiers that they beat. So again, this is a guerrilla style of fighting. G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A. I think it's two R's in there. It doesn't matter. Um, but not the, you know, guerrilla, right? What is guerrilla warfare? You know, we all kind of have like a gut feel of what guerrilla warfare is, but at its base sense, guerrilla warfare is taking the resources of your enemy and using those 
against your enemy. We see Rambo taking advantage of the enemy's countryside and using it to overthrow his enemy. We see the people of Red Dawn taking the Russians' resources and using them against the Russians. It is guerrilla warfare. You just saw two examples of it. Are you with me? Revelation is literary guerrilla warfare. It's more than just a code. Because what John does in Revelation is he takes the imagery, the symbolism, and the cultural map, if you will, of the Roman imperial cult and uses their very images against them as he writes. So while on one hand, John is drawing deeply from a coded biblical language, an Old Testament language, that the Jews would understand and the Romans would not. He is simultaneously also drawing on Roman imperial cult imagery and turning it on its head with what I can only describe is a literary guerrilla assault on the imperial cult. And so the trick becomes understanding the imagery in the language. So let's use these two movie clips as an example for maybe how to and how not to read Revelation. Who were both Rambo and the Red Dawn students fighting? Okay, the Soviet Union, right? Not even fair to call it Russia, because the proper term would be to call it the Soviet Union. And how many of you knew that after I mentioned this came out in the 80s, that Russia was the Soviet Union? Do you, do you mind just kind of like owning that? Did, did you know that? Did I have to tell you that? Not most of you. How many of you knew or figured out that it was Russians that these people were fighting? Yeah? No? All right. Some know, some yes. Those of you who knew it, how did you know that they were Russian? The language. Do you speak Russian? You don't speak Russian, but you knew. Even though you don't speak the language, you somehow knew that the language they were speaking was Russian, right? And how did you know that the language they were speaking was Russian? Well, probably because you heard accent patterns, you heard a kind of certain style, and there was other contextual clues surrounding it, right? What were some of the other contextual clues? The way they looked. The way they dressed. The weaponry. All these other things, not to mention basically this. We know, those of us who lived in the 80s, that this was, can you say, a, a pinnacle of the Cold War, if you will, right? And that Cold War mania was kind of at a height, and movies like Red Dawn and Rambo were actually birthed out of a Cold War mentality where the big evil empire was Russia. Now, every kid in the 80s knew this. You would see red and you would go bad color, right? You would hear the term Russia or Soviet Union and you would go enemy. You just knew it. So none of this had to be explained when you watched the movie. Does that make sense? Revelation, 
assumes the same kind of things and does the same kind of things. Now let's talk about some details. In Rambo, in both movies, we saw uniforms being, well, being worn by who we perceive to be the bad guys, right? Would you say that the uniform was significant? Was it important? Was it an important detail to the storyline? Yeah, how come? What was, why was it an important detail to the storyline? Yeah, it, it established background because you kind of know the uniform. Now, who here is an expert on Soviet uniforms in the 80s? None of us. Who here is an expert on Soviet insignia? None of us, probably. But you just kind of knew, right? And so the details were an important part of the story because it helped you identify who we're fighting here. Now, what was the significance of using maybe like um, a bow and arrow? What was the significance of some of the rocks that you saw Rambo hiding in? Would you say there was any significance there other than knowing it's guerrilla warfare? Quieter. Well, it's quieter. But, but was it necessary to see that to understand the storyline? Like, did it matter if it was that pile of rocks or a different pile of rocks somewhere else? Did it matter if he was hiding in mud or if he came out of the water? Probably not, it was a cool scene. So do we see how sometimes details matter and sometimes details don't? Or to put it another way, sometimes a detail is significant and other times a detail is just part of the story telling. Not too much different than Jesus' parables. It's knowing what details to pay attention to that matters. Let's look at this final scene before we break. We have the term Wolverines spray-painted on the side of a blown-up Soviet APC or some kind of vehicle, all right? <laughs> we saw that at the end of this clip that they were shouting Wolverines and spray-painting Wolverines all over stuff, right? Is there a deep significance that we're supposed to draw from the Wolverine animal that's important to us in the red line in the storyline? Must be getting a no, getting a I don't know. Everyone else is like I'm not going to commit to an answer. They're ferocious, they're small, they're tough, they're hard to kill. It kind of has a symbolic value for maybe these fighters who are small in number. If you watch the movie, you would also know that it's the name of their high school football team. Um, so see, now then you get some more insight and suddenly, oh, I get what's going on. This is what Revelation is like. But would it be fair to say that there is some eternal significance to a Wolverine? That if I was to come across, and I was reading the script for this, and I came across Wolverine, that I should be expecting a Wolverine to come in the future, or that there's something important about Wolverine that I need to adopt in its own literal sense. No, it's what it represents, right? So even though it's significant, it's not because the animal is significant per se, maybe outside of a little bubble, right? It's what we're drawing on in what they're doing in relation to this imagery that becomes far more important than the imagery itself. Yeah, Mike. But see, but it's, this is also a lesson that's parallel because 35, 40 years on, we're still seeing the same thing. Yeah. Well, 
A few. A few. So it's the power of the image that kind of contains something that people can draw on later, even if the essence of the image isn't the main point, right? And I'm just going to kind of wrap this up today by going, this is what Revelation does. This is what it's all about. And if you can kind of remember these principles, it is going to help you a lot. Because you need to read it like a book or watch it like a movie. Sometimes... The context and the details are significant. Sometimes they are simply just advancing the plot line down the road, but it's giving images for us to hold on to. I'll throw one example on the board. In Revelation chapter 13, we come across the number of the beast, 666. Let the reader understand. And how much ink and press time has that number received over the years and people to this day trying to look for the literal number somewhere as some mark that we're in the end times or something like that. Is it possible that it's doing the same thing that spray painting wolverines on the side of a blown up APC is doing for the listeners of John? And it's not the number that is eternally significant, but the principle behind what it meant to them that we draw on are you starting to see how revelation works? So where we're going to carry this next week is outlining the book. Meaning, if I was to start a chapter run and read through to chapter 22, what is the timeline that I am supposed to follow? And I am just going to drop a teaser that it is probably not what you think. We'll leave it there. We'll see you next Sunday, hopefully. God bless. And... Uh, Catch up on your red dawn, all right?